Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I put out a call for reviews a couple weeks ago, but I did it at the very tail end of the podcast, and of course, people don't listen to the very tail end of it, just like they don't watch all the credits in the movies. Maybe you're one of the people who watches all the credits in the movies. I've done it a couple times probably in the past, but uh, you know, most people head for the access right as soon as the actual show is over. So I want to repeat it to the beginning. I have 298 reviews uh, for the podcast on Apple Podcast. I would love to get that over 300. So if you haven't yet left a review, please left, leave an honest review or rating uh, on Apple Podcast today. I'd appreciate it. I want you to think today about the utopia, the type of community that some type of online anonymous right-wing Twitter guy might want. Or you could even think about uh, what the Neo-Tocquevillian Front Porch Republic type people might want. What type of community would that be? What would it look like? Well, probably it's, you know, somewhat rural or small town. Maybe it's got a sort of a Mayberry-esque view of it. Maybe a little bit of a retro uh, in that regard. Not very huge, big cities, uh, but maybe a small town and and rural. Uh, and there's probably a lot of traditional ways of life that are still uh, in place. You know, the architecture is still uh, kept up. There's a lot of small businesses and independently owned Main Street businesses that are that are thriving. There's not as much, you know, big box retail. Uh, you know, the downtowns aren't run down. Uh, it's, it's very beautiful type of community. There's probably also uh, a lot of natural beauty uh, there. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, goes along with, you know, this idea of a more pure age or something like that that people might have. Uh, of course, it's a very patriotic place. There are probably flags, American flags hanging off the light poles coming into town. It's very patriotic. Um, of course, obviously, you can, uh, it's constitutional carry state. So you can carry guns, uh, concealed weapons without even needing a permit to do it. Uh, people are are well armed uh, there. It's extremely safe. It's extremely safe. So if you think about the little cafe in the downtown, they just leave their tables and chairs out 24 hours a day, even when they're closed. They're not locked up. They're not stacked together in chains or anything like that. And you know, maybe if you go down to the town park and look at the sandbox, there's a bunch of toys in there that they just leave. Nice big trucks and things like that that um, you know allow people to. Um, to be able to uh, play with them, just on the assumption it's just not going to be stolen, something like that. And you say, what kind of a place is this? What kind of a place is this? Very much in this this kind of utopian model. And I can tell you that place actually exists, and the name of it is Vermont, which is, of course, the left-wing utopia with the socialist uh, senator uh, Bernie Sanders, famously left-wing, Ben and Jerry's, all of these people. And, you know, I really find it interesting to, to think about that. And that really poses, I think, a very big challenge or conundrum for conservative thinkers. And I uh, always like to 
turn the spotlight on the defects, not just of conservatism, not just of uh, uh, conservative leadership, but also of conservative people. And of course, a lot of the people who listen to me tend to be on the conservative side. They're probably used to criticizing the left. Believe me, there's a lot to criticize on the left, okay? Uh, there's a lot to say. You know, I don't know that I necessarily have anything unique to add, to add to the great chorus of it. Uh, you know, they they are they are actually pretty much you know get their way because they've got all the power, not because their ideas are you know anything other than transparently ridiculous. Uh, in many cases, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll spend some time doing that. But I have a more conservative audience. And again, go back to the old Greek proverb: "To know thyself." That's the most important thing. And if you just look at um, you look at uh, say Sun Tzu. You know, he said something to the effect of, if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear the outcome of a thousand battles. Well, the problem is most conservatives know neither themselves nor their enemies. Uh, and as a result, they lose every battle. And so I think Vermont is just really an interesting case study in showing that the very type of community that conservatives say that they want could only be produced in essentially a left-wing controlled environment. So I was I was up in New England actually when I was on vacation. I was actually going to New Hampshire was my destination, but uh, I spent a couple days in Vermont and, and driving around Vermont. And you know Vermont is super impressive. You know I had been to I was mostly in southern Vermont I would just say, but uh, you know I'd been in, to New Hampshire uh, multiple times. Of course, not New Hampshire is the live free or die state. Uh, it also doesn't have an income tax. It doesn't have a uh, sales tax. And it's voted for the Democrat, I think, in elections, but it's known as the much more conservative uh, of the Paris. So you got the kind of the more left wing, um, you, you know, um, Vermont, and the more kind of conservative, libertarian uh, New Hampshire. And, you know, I've been in New Hampshire again several times. And, you know, I remember uh, going up there one of the first times I visited, I was going to, to visit one of the lakes there. And then on the way back, rather than taking the interstate, I decided to just take. I think it's US-3 down through there. And I'm driving through here. I'm like, man, this is just one bombed out, clapped out town after another. New Hampshire has some very nice, beautiful scenery. It's got some beautiful lakes, the mountains, things like that. I'm sure in the fall, it's utterly gorgeous. And yet you look at the built environment, it's kind of junky. I mean, it reminded me a lot of Indiana. Indiana is a junky state. We just got to be honest with it. And I think that kind of junkiness is endemic to kind of conservative communities, go to the South, to all these red states, you know, go to Houston, right? Go to Alabama, go to these places. They're very junky. And that's just the reality. And this libertarianism, it just takes this approach that, you know, you can basically do whatever you want. So of course, there's signs everywhere, clutter, marketing clutter, big boxes. And of course, their downtown is bombed out because all the businesses closed. They couldn't compete with the Walmart. Nobody invested to keep them up, et cetera. Well, you go to Vermont, it's a little bit of a different situation. So Vermont, for example, has is one of the few states that has completely banned billboards. I don't think there are any billboards in the state. So you drive it around, there's like no billboards in the state. Then you uh you know, you drive down the interstate and like in Indiana, the Midwest, a lot of the middle states, you know, there's those little blue signs that tell you the services that are there. You know, they've now become essentially billboards. So they've got like the Shell logo and the McDonald's logo and all that. Well, they don't have any of that, you know. In, in New Hampshire, uh, nor do they have these huge gigantic pole signs at, at interchanges, you know, with a huge M or something or a huge BP logo on it. So you just it's it's just much more attractive place to go. Again, the towns are much more intact. Uh, you know, it's not to say that every place is perfect, but it's you know they've they've avoided really junking the place up to a to a great extent. 
And they've also uh, had one of the earliest, essentially, anti-big box laws. And so it doesn't make it impossible to open, uh, you know, a big box retailer in the state. But there are actually relatively few. There may be only six or seven Walmarts in the whole state. And supposedly like half of them are reuses of existing structures. You know, so they, they didn't just build things in that town. And again, drive through South Rutland or someplace like that. Yeah, it's like a typical suburban strip. And oh, by the way, if you look at Rutland, it's probably the most conservative city in Vermont. The, the place that I went that actually had the junk is the place that's light blue or even Trump voting precincts around there as I looked on the, on the mirror. And so I think it, it's really interesting. You know, I say conservative, there's a saying, you know, what does conservatism conserve? Conservatism hasn't conserved anything. And I think a lot of people talk about, you know, they think about that in terms of moral conservation or uh, institutions, conserving institutions, things like that. But the reality is they haven't even conserved the built environment where they or their families, you know, lived. And so you look at a downtown, one of these like huge Trump voting kind of areas, and it's rural or it's got a small town. You go into the small town, it's very run down. And yes, some of that's due to economic forces outside of their control, to be sure. Um, but, you know, you look at it, who is investing in these communities? Who is making the investment to renovate an old house in the center of town? Who is opening a coffee shop? Who is renovating a historic building? Who is trying to open a bookstore or a boutique? Very often, it's lefties, especially the more kind of historic and quaint the architecture of the town is, the uh, the more likely it is to attract, you know, people on the left. And, um, you, know, you know, a lot of these towns that are still pretty architecturally intact, like Hudson, New York, you know, have been essentially completely colonized and taken over uh, by essentially very far left groups. Uh, Hudson votes something like 80% Democrat or something like that. And so, and of course, they're, you know, they're pristine and they're beautiful and all these things. And you say, well, that's just all about money. It's just all about money. Well, you know, uh, you know, New Hampshire and Vermont both have money. I mean, New Hampshire is not a poor state. It's not like they couldn't have nicer building standards and things if they wanted. They just don't want to. They just don't want to. They just don't want to preserve these towns. Whereas Vermont said, yes, we are going to preserve these towns. And Vermont is interesting. I mean, I don't know a lot about it culturally, uh, but uh, I am a little bit, uh, can't help but make a comparison to say Humboldt County, California, which is in Northern California. My uncle for many, many years lived in a town called Garberville. And Garberville was this famously hippie place where a lot of the counterculture people had moved um, back in the day, uh, in the 70s, when kind of the, the scene crashed, if you will. Uh, and it's a lot of baby boomers, or maybe even a little older, and it's it's very, you know, left-wing. They grow a lot of pot. These are the people who didn't want pot legalized because, you know, it was cutting into their illegal growing businesses and things like that. Of course, now the land is all getting bought up, and it's very expensive. It's incredibly beautiful. Uh, but, you know, people forget that there was a rural component to the counterculture, and there was kind of a, a, you know, there was a sort of a left-wing arm of this back-to-the-land movement. And, and some of that survived. It survived in Northern California. And I gather that, you know, Vermont very much had some of that, um, some of that counterculture influence. There. And it's, it, it is left-wing in many ways, but there's also a tremendous conservatism to it. And until he was essentially broken on the wheel in the 2020 election and essentially sacrificed all of his self-respect, Bernie Sanders used to hold positions that you might think of and it would certainly be viewed as highly conservative today. So we talked about immigration, open borders. He said, that's a Koch brothers 
idea. That's Koch brothers. That's about de- degrading the labor of our country. Well, of course, now he's, you know, again, he, they had him broken on the wheel, and now he's, uh, you know, he's he, he just signs on to whatever they sign on to. I mean, again, he, he should have gone away. The man has really, I can't, I can't see how a guy could have any res- respect anymore now that he's essentially had to, you know, repudiate many of his own positions in order to uh, kind of, uh, you know, sign on to the, the whole woke agenda, the, kind of the nouveau uh, party line. Uh, but there's there is a certain uh, there is a certain conservatism to it. They conserve the land. They want to conserve the nature. A lot of the environmental movement, conservation movement, there was a conservative aspect to this, and uh, so it's not entirely uh, it's not entirely progressive in the sense of constant change. They actually want hey, we want to preserve our natural environment. We want to preserve the beauty. We want to preserve our towns. And if you think about it, these are the people who've actually done it. Uh, it's actually not the conservatives that could that have that have done it, and so you can again look in. I see in Indiana the, the towns that are there that are that are being invested in historic architecture. Uh, it's not. There's plenty of rich conservative people in India. There's plenty of conservative people that got money in the state, and they're not investing in these towns, right? They're just building a suburban mega mansion. And again, I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with living in the suburbs, but this idea of like. What have you preserved? I, I think is an important one, and now I do think we have to to just ask, you know, where, you know, why haven't conservatives been able to produce the kinds of, you know, environments that they might say that they want, right? That they're kind of complaining as they're voting for Trump about the, um, you know, about the uh, uh, the the decay and the depression in their town, and yet, what would they do? And you, know, you can say, well, you know, they just they just haven't had good leadership, which is true. But I mean, if you went into one of these Indiana towns and you said, we're going to ban billboards, uh, we're going to ban big box stores, people wouldn't want to do that. It would be dr- really opposed. Uh, you know, they don't want no they don't want no government. They don't want no regulations. Uh, they don't want to pay any taxes. And you know, that's the reality. And I think the other you, you see this at the urban level too. Where do the conservative intelligentsia the conservative leaders live most of them live in washington or new york city they live in deep blue places the fact is because it's the people on the left who have actually created the environments that they personally want to live in they don't want to live in the conservative environments of the state and you see it here in indiana too so uh mitch daniels the former governor of the state they called him the blade because he was all about cutting uh, cutting spending. He's super fiscally conservative. You know, he's famous now. He's the president of Purdue University, famous for having frozen tuition since 2013. And, you know, when he was governor, he used to just, his administration would veto building projects in cities, something that had really never been done uh, before because like bond issues and things had to be approved by the State Department of Local Government Finance. And he just, his administration just said, we're not going to let you build them. So this uh, town Westfield wanted to build a new library. He's like, nope, we're not going to let you do that. Southern town Greenwood, I think, wanted to build a library or school. Like, nope, we're not going to let you do that. Uh, we don't need any gold-plated projects. That was his line. No gold-plated projects. Then Mike Pence, again, he was super, super fiscally conservative. When he was in Congress, you know, he used to complain all the time that, you know, the Republicans are big spenders. We need to get back to fiscal conservatism. And then when he was governor, he cut taxes. He didn't really spend a lot of money. Well, where do Mitch Daniels and Mike Pence live here in Indiana? They live in a town called Carmel which is the most upscale, gold-plated community in the state. It is huge spending. They spend a ton of money, as much as basically they're allowed to spend by the state. They've accumulated $1.4 billion in debt. They're famous for their debt and the huge amounts of debt that they've got. 
And yet, you know, the most gold-plated, the biggest spending, the most indebted community in the state, the place that is most unlike their own governing philosophy is where both Mitch Daniels and Mike Pence chose to live personally. I mean, that says something, right? That says something. And I think it really points to, quite frankly, a character defect in conservatism. And again, I think the biggest issue uh, that people have is, is all the, the blame wants to be put on the leadership. Well, you know, it's all the woke preachers or the woke capital or the, it's the GOP establishment or these people. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of criticism to be spared there. But I think the rank and file need to take a hard look in the mirror and say, yeah, you know, we got some issues too. We, our own values are the reason that our communities are the way they are, at least in part. Yes, there's economic forces and outside forces that have uh, gone against us, but, you know, we made our own decision. A buddy of mine pointed out many years ago that the former slogan um, uh, of the uh, city of Detroit was Detroit, where life is worth living every day. And this was in the very earliest uh, 20th century. It was part of a poem that would have been written about Detroit by a a poet. I think his name might have been Edgar Guest. I think his last name was Guest. I can't remember his first name uh, precisely. He's sort of in the where are they now file. Uh, H.L. Mencken used to make fun of him and sort of mock him all the time. But it was Detroit where life's worth living every day. And then as the auto industry became prosperous, these places became about just working and making money. They became a, a venue for, for doing business. And, you know, Detroit never created the institutions that, say, a Chicago made, uh, you know, in terms of the Art Institute. And, you know, Detroit has a, a great art museum, uh, but certainly not Chicago grade. And, oh, by the way, it was very poorly endowed. Uh, they, they had very little endowment there. They, did, they didn't create the great institutions and the great endowments and things that, um, you know, say a Chicago did in becoming this great cultural city. And they sort of went away from this idea of, you know, uh, where life is worth living. And, you know, that's that's a motto that certainly would not resonate with today's conservatives. You know, it's where, I mean, imagine a conservative who said, I want to, I don't want to be the best place for business. I want to be the best place to live. I want this to be a place where life is worth living every day. It just doesn't exist in the conservative vocabulary or the conservative mindset today. I look again at the courthouse squares of, you know, these Indiana towns, just beautiful courthouses that were built, a lot of them, some of them in the 1800s, early 1900s, when, you know, this state and its communities were so much poorer. These people were poor back then compared to us. Yet they said, we want to have these beautiful buildings in our community. The sort of values that produce that, they don't exist in the people anymore in those places. And so I really think... Uh, that, you know, conservatives need to take stock of why it's only the left that's able to create the kinds of communities that conservatives themselves claim to want to live in, or many conservatives, certainly not all, but many of them do, uh, their vision of America. And, you know, why is that? Why is that? Why are conservative places so junky uh, so mo- so often? And that beauty uh, is is something that has really not been there. Why have they not preserved the places where they live? What's going on there? And I think that's an important point. Now, what I would say is, you know, kind of this culture of people uh, 
you know, has deep historic roots. There's not a lot you can necessarily do about it easily. And they're not likely to change you. This is where leadership is important. You know, the wealth of a country, the wealth of a state is its people. And so you want to, to increase your wealth, you, uh, you invest in your people, you upgrade your people. And that's one of the things I think that has been, uh, Hard as sort of a left-wing plot. It was, you know, progressive era thinking, things like that, you know, manipulating people through education. And there's some of that. But, you know, just imagine, for example, one of the things we did in this country, you know, in the, in the 19th century is we said, look, even before in other places, we're going to have compulsory education. Children have to go to school. You have to send your kids to school. So I think it was Massachusetts that had the first compulsory education act. Oh, by the way, Massachusetts is the most educated state in America today. And education is the number one way we invest right in our children, our stuff. If I'm gaining new skills, it doesn't have to be like even formal book learning. I'm gaining skills. I'm gaining capabilities in my life. You know, think about that. Well, you know, a lot of these places are very anti-education. So Indiana was the last state in the Midwest to uh, put in place a compulsory education law. Well, no surprise that it is the least educated, you know, basically state today. And so you start looking at those things and like, I think the leadership needs to look at how do they invest in and upgrade their people. And that means putting in regulations that are not just focused on the needs of parasitic exploitative businesses uh, or putting in another casino uh, or figuring out how to get a profit sharing payment out of the opioid thing, but say, how are we going to get rid of the opioids? How are we going to reduce smoking? How are we going to reduce obesity? How are we going to help, you know, physically store these communities? How are we going to focus on living, you know, jobs that can actually pay a humane wage and, you know, things of nature? How do we better educate, you know, our people, right? How do we sustain marriages and families here? How do we encourage, um, you know, the practice of the true faith, you know, engagement in community? These are things that are just really seen somewhat outside the domain of leadership, uh, in conservatism, which has this very, you know, libertarian concept of, well, it's everybody's kind of freedom to do whatever they want. And this idea is people will naturally want to do these things. But the fact is, you know, just like with your kids, they don't always do exactly what you want. So we have to be thinking about how do we build up our people. And I'll have a lot more to say about that in, in the future. But, you know, the challenge I put out, go go drive around some small towns in New Hampshire. Yes, New Hampshire actually has some beautiful small towns, by the way. Not all the towns in New Hampshire are terrible. There's some fantastic places there. Um, there's a lot of rundown places there too, though. And you compare it to Vermont, there's a, a big difference. Um, again, go look at, you know, Hudson, New York. Uh, go look at some of these towns that are really, really, really nice in kind of rural small town areas. And very often you'll find that it's the left who's made them that way or at least kept them that way or restored them. And you go to the conservative towns and what do you see is, you know, uh, the place where, you know, the, the the Dollar General is now in the strip mall where the Walmart that closed used to be and you've run down the downtown. I think, you know, conservatives really need to take stock as, you know, why have we failed at creating, you know, um, these kinds of communities? Why is the only community that conservatives create essentially a new suburb, right? You know, new sprawly suburbs where we kind of ran away from where we used to live and try to start something new. But again, if you look at what happens to suburbs over time, they tend to, other than the richest suburbs, tend to fall into decay after about 30 years or so, particularly in places where you can actually build new, new ones. The only places where older suburbs really retain a lot of value is either in hypergrowth communities like Houston or in places where building is so restricted that it essentially forces people to live in that. 
Uh, so I'd encourage you to visit Vermont. It's really an, uh, kind of an impressive little uh, place. Again, it's, it's not economically thriving. You know, these things haven't produced economic success um, there necessarily. They're, they're basically paying you to move to the state. But they've at least said, hey, maybe we can't. Um, we can't create economic prosperity too, but we can't think about it say, what kind of a place do we want to live in? What kind of community do we want to be in every day? How do we improve our quality of life? How do we have beautiful surroundings here? You know, how do we, you know, how do we express our values in the community? And I think, um, I think to a great extent, uh, you know, unfortunately the, the physical condition and the physical appearance of conservative places, uh, is a correct expression of the values of the people who live there. And I think we need to allow ourselves to be challenged by something like that. So again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.